3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm here with Inez. Good morning, Inez. Hello, hello. How are you? Oh, I like the little arm thing, the little wave. I don't know how to do that. I, I don't know either. I can't, uh, you know, once I start it with one arm, I can't get the other arm to sort of link up for the whole wave to go across my body. And because this is an audio medium, I'm sure this is a very helpful and useful thing to listen Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Hey, regular listeners, uh, you may remember the one time ages ago where I shouted out the onion car. I drove past, well, I rode past the onion car again on uh, St. George's Road today. Small car, small hatch, full of onions. Amazing. I love it. Onion delivery guy, keep doing your thing. 100%. Um, we have, as usual, a big show. It's been a bleak week with the federal budget, um, and you know we're going to be covering some fairly serious topics uh, but also, you know, just a reminder to keep getting out there, getting organized, be invested in your community. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union are doing a lot of organizing as our anti-poverty center, which, disclosure, I am a member of. Um, but, you know, just a reminder that uh, there's a lot of rage um, and a lot of grief coming out of this budget related to poverty payments, housing, the NDIS, so many other things. Um, and that's the sort of energy that I think can be really productive to capture while also sitting in the grief and rage. Um, you want to take it away? Absolutely. So first up, we'll hear from Renuga Impakumar, who is a young Ilam Talam activist and law and art student with a long history of organizing to amplify Ilam Talam Tamil issues. She'll be speaking to us about Sunday's rally at the State Library at 2 p.m., remembering Mulibakul, Ilam Talams. Organized by Tamil Refugee Council and why it's so important to commemorate the truths of the day, the genocidal killings and the Tamils who have had to seek persecution. And uh, after that, we're going to hear a segment of Democracy Now! where Amy Goodman speaks with Matt Mahmoudi, the lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report called Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. This report documents how the Israeli government is using an experimental facial recognition system to track Palestinians and control their movements. And a reminder as well that Nakba Day is coming up and Free Palestine Melbourne will be holding a rally outside the State Library. Uh, so I will share some details about that after we wrap up this rundown. And then we'll hear from Sione Crawford, CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, about Victoria's second medically supervised injecting centre in the Melbourne CBD. And this follows the recommendation from the independent review of the medically supervised injecting room in Richmond, um, which was to establish a second medically supervised injecting server trial in the CBD. And also the survey for Have Your Say closes on Tuesday the 16th of May. Excellent. Yeah, please, uh, please... 
fill out that survey. Highly recommend. Uh, we need people that are supportive and understanding of these issues to fill it out. Uh, and finally, we are joined by designer, researcher, and delivery writer Andrew Kupolov to speak about supporting and organizing gig workers in Melbourne, including through gig worker meetups that are running this week out of testing grounds at Victoria Market. Andrew's a coordinator at the Melbourne Art Library and a PhD student at Monash University. And you can find out more about the gig worker meetups at flow-state. One. That is O-N-E. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to talk about this and share more information about those meetups running out of testing grounds. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 11th of May. On Wednesday, two Palestinians were killed in an attack from Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank town of Kabatia. Just one day before, Tuesday, the 9th of May, saw a series of missile attacks killing at least 15 people. Locations struck by the missiles include Rafah, Khan Yunis, and northern Gaza, and one of the attacks targeted a civilian residential building, killing a number of women and children. As of yesterday's attack, two fatalities and one serious injury have been reported. And the two Palestinians shot and killed by Israeli soldiers have been identified as 19-year-old Palestinian boy Ahmad Jamal Asaf and 24-year-old Warani Walid Katanat. A 17-year-old boy has also been transferred to hospital. Also in news headlines... Listeners, please be advised that the following headline contains mention of suicide and a First Nations person who has died. Please tune in, tune out for the next five minutes if you think you might be impacted. If you need immediate support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. And for mob-only support, you can call 13YARN on 13927 or the Kids Helpline on 1-800-55-1800. A mass disruption has occurred at Banksia Hill Detention Centre in WA on Tuesday night. Fifty children breached their cells, gaining access to the prison, grounds and roof. Fires were lit in several accommodation blocks. A number of incidents have occurred at the Banksia Hill Youth Detention Centre over the past six months. Police responded to the incident en masse with Regional Operations Group, Polar and the K-9 Unit acting in collaboration with Corrective Services, Special Operations Group to quash the quote-unquote disturbance. In response to the incident, a number of children have been transferred to Unit 18 in Casarina Adults Prison, which was set up last year to relieve growing pressure at Banksia Hill. Last week, several leaked emails revealed the shocking lack of psychological care within Unit 18. That reflects an ongoing crisis and severe mental health crisis in prisons across WA. This comes as an inquest begins into the 2020 suicide of 19-year-old First Nations boy Stanley Imam Jr. during his incarceration at Acacia Prison. The National Justice Project has called on the state government to address the mental health emergency in WA prisons.
The family of Mr. Inman says, quote, We as a family have stood alongside these other families also affected by this great epidemic and injustice against indigenous men, women, youth and children of this country. We simply just don't understand how to others he has just become a statistic. And just want to repeat those support lines um, because of the content in that last headline. Uh, if you need immediate support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And for mob-only support, you can call 13YARN on 1392. Oh, there's a missing number there, but that's 13YARN. Or the Kids Helpline on 1-800-55-1800. And finally, in headlines, Tuesday marks the handing down of the highly anticipated 2023-24 federal budget. A $40 per fortnight increase to job seeker and youth allowance payments still leaves those on welfare living significantly below the Henderson poverty line. The single parent payment saw an extension in support for children aged up to 14 years, where previously single parents have only received welfare support for dependents up to 8 years old. Energy relief supplements of $500 will be available to those in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania, with Victorians receiving an additional $250 following a round of state government funding in March. And the maximum rate of Commonwealth rent assistance is set to rise by 15% for people in private rentals and community housing. Recent rental price increases of 11.7% in capital cities over the past 12 months dwarf the payment increase, which only amounts to roughly $1 extra per day. Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre says that the raises are an insult to people on welfare and calls for, quote, an independent body with responsibility for developing a sophisticated poverty measure and setting Centrelink rates with a mandate to ensure no person in this continent is living in poverty. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 11th of May. And just before we wrap up headlines, I will remind listeners about the protest and commemoration of Nakba, 75 years of apartheid, and a call to end Israel's occupation of Palestine, which will be held on Saturday, the 13th of May at 1 p.m. outside the State Library. So Free Palestine, Melbourne, APAN, uh, you know, a bunch of other organizations are calling for people to show up in solidarity to protest and commemorate the Nakba. This, again, is 75 years of apartheid and calling to end Israel's occupation of Palestine, as, as we've seen and spoken about over the past few months, definitely since the start of this year. Uh, attacks on Palestinians have increased significantly and you know, we can't just stand by and normalize this and pretend this is okay. So that's Saturday, the 13th of May at 1 p.m. outside of the State Library. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Uruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian Government Ministers, Senior Bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1pm, Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1pm, Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Now we'll hear from Renega Impakumar, who is a young Ilam Tamil activist and a law art student with a long history of organising to amplify Ilam Tamil issues. She'll be speaking about Sunday's rally at the State Library at 2pm, Remembering Mulibakul, organised by the Tamil Refugee Council, and why it's important to commemorate the truth of the day, the genocidal killings, and the Tamils who have had to seek protection. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Renega. Thank you so much for having me. Could you provide some insight into the current work of what the Tamil Refugee Council does? Yes, so TLC was founded on uh, 2011 in response to the mass arrival of refugees from Tamililam. So we involve in raising awareness of the particular challenges facing members of the Tamililam community and campaigning to change Australian government refugee policy. Uh, so for more than 12 years, Tamil Refugee Council has built a record of consistent and unwavering service to the Tamil Refugee community. We engage in media liaison, individual advocacy, educational work, and campaign for the rights of individuals and the refugee population as a whole. We did cases like the Pre and the Death case, a Free Rajan, um, and we're continuing to show awareness that the genocide in Tamil Elam has been ongoing since 1948. 
Yeah, it's been such a hugely important organization. And I want to also touch on the rally um, called Remembering Mulibakal at the State Library this Sunday. And I know that it's about mourning those who have died and fighting like hell for many Elam Tamils who have had to seek protection in other countries. Could you tell us a little bit more about the events leading up to the 18th of May in 2009 at Mulibakal? So May 2009, we like to call it as the peak of the genocide, so the highest point where the Sri Lankan state committed horrendous, heinous crimes on the Elam Tamils. So the Sri Lankan state falsely told the Elam Tamils to go into no-fire zones. And these zones were told that there would be no bombing, it'd be a safe zone. But it was a lie, and all the Elam Tamils were basically herded like cattle. They had no place to go but those zones. And these zones were repeatedly bombed, and these bombs had phosphorus. Um, these bombs would burst in the air, and pieces would go into people. Um, and these bombs would go every 45 minutes, and they were aimed systematically to kill civilians and annihilate them. Um, and we can see that in the hospitals, when they were bombed every 45 minutes, it was targeted when uh, people would go and try and save the injured and they were capable of living. Um, but the Sri Lankan state had no mercy in 2009. Um, and, you know, there is many trophy photos and trophy videos that the Sri Lankan army have, and that's been put up online of Sri Lankan soldiers killing and executing people. We have surrendered LTTE fighters um, who were actually raped and then shot. Um, and some of these videos actually are very brutal, where they show the Sri Lankan army um, laughing at dead corpses, hitting them when they're dead. Um, and we have many kids who are tortured. We also know that in May 2009, the UN left. You know, the UN knew that this was going to become very brutal and the UN has done nothing since then. It's been 14 years. And May 18th is the day where we remember and it is the day where internationally we remember all the civilians that, that died um, and we remember that no one was with us during that month. And it, whilst May 2009 in Mulivaika was burnt to the ground, um, internationally, we were trying to draw awareness, and still um, people choose to ignore us 14 years later. Yeah, it's so calculated and so isolating and completely devastating to hear that. Um, and also important to remember that 2009 was not that long ago at all. And mm -hmm. I also want to um, ask you, how do you think these genocidal killings that occurred in May 2009 continue to impact Tamils today, particularly knowing that, you know, a lot of the war criminals remain in senior leadership positions within the Sri Lankan military and government. Yeah, so, you know, due to Sri Lanka and Australia, you know, having close relations and other international nations having those close relations with Sri Lanka, there is a narrative that's being favoured, and that narrative favours the chauvinistic Sri Lankan narrative, you know, the narrative that this island is beautiful, the narrative that this island has beautiful resorts and, you know, it's being progressive, that there's so-called reconciliation. But actually, the narrative should be that this genocide has been committed since 1948 and the genocide of killings in 2009 is being ignored. 
and the war criminals that were in senior positions in May 2009 are still in senior positions now. You know, we've got one instance. You know, the United States actually banned the governor of northwestern province in Sri Lanka, Wasanta, um, and he was the former Sri Lankan Navy commander who actually was responsible of the Navy 11 case, which was, you know, uh, the abduction and disappearance of 11 Tamil youth during the years of 2008 and 2009. But we see that that case was dropped because everywhere in Sri Lanka, chauvinism is real and the constitution is based on genocidal actions. Um, and those in power will continue to suppress the Elam Tamils um, after 2009. And we know that these senior leader positions have very close relations with the Australian government. You know, we saw Claire O'Neill visit uh, uh, Sri Lanka within the first month of Labour being in power and receiving a book from Kumar Gunaratna about Mulibaika. You know, their version of defeating terrorism, but really... Um, it wasn't defeating terrorism. It was killing millions of Elam Tamils mercilessly under the hands of the genocidal regime. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, speaking to the rewriting of history, um, we know that preju- um, the presidency of Rajapaksa, uh, that this day was seen as Victory Day until 2015 and also included a military parade. And, you know, Rajapaksa's return to power in 2019 saw the Sri Lankan government crack down on Tamil memorialization events, including demolishing a war memorial um, for the victims in 2021. I guess I also want to ask, why is it so essential that we do not forget the genocide of Ilam Tamils and that the day is really commemorated in truth? So, you know, Sadly, like right now, we have three LTT card parents fasting onto death because the graveyard of the LTT is being used as a cricket ground where the Sri Lankan military can play, can walk on um, disrespectfully. And all these graves were destroyed under army tanks because they wanted to destroy our history. They wanted to destroy our truth. Um, and we will not forget the genocide. We will not forget the ongoing genocide. And we shouldn't forget the peak of the genocide because that's when the world chose to ignore us. That's when the world chose to go along with Sri Lanka committing those genocidal crimes. And what we can see is that the international states will not acknowledge this crime of genocide because they were also responsible. So I think it's crucial that we do not forget the genocide. And Elam Tamils won't either. We will continue to pass on this history. And, you know, the the Sri Lankan security forces deal with public commemorations by stopping parents from lighting lamps. Remember, May is the most heavily um, militarized, um, you know, thing in in Tamil Elam. It's constantly militarized in May. The Nandikaro Bridge was the bridge where Elam Tamils crossed trying to get to safety but were met with the Sri Lankan army separating the crowd, executing them, raping them. And that bridge has multiple security checkpoints because they know in May people want to go there and remember the pain that's there. Um, and the genocide is ongoing, and the wider community shouldn't pick and choose. They should stand along with us because that intergenerational trauma is real, and we have to carry this pain through our bloodline. So we will not forget, 
and we'll keep fighting until we receive justice because we haven't since 1948 and 14 years later we haven't since the mass killings from the Sri Lankan state. Yeah, 100%. And I think also knowing that the Sri Lankan you know, government and military are so relentless and knowing that there's still a lot of strength um, in, you know, Ilum Tamils as well. I also want to ask, how do you think, like, the Tamil communities across the world find community and safety in each other, you know, also because it's quite clear that the war, um, like, the genocide has caused the Tamil diaspora to seek refuge across the world? I think we... We all know that we were unable to go back to Tamil and we're unable to feel how it feels to be back on our land. So we, the only way we find community and safety in each other is talking about it, you know, talking about why we can't go there, passing on the struggle to the younger generations. And we have commemorations worldwide in May and we ensure our young ones are a part of that and they understand what happened in May. We ensure that um, witnesses tell their story. Um, and we also find community and safety in each other by being with each other during these difficult times and acknowledging each other's pain. And I think um, what has been recognized is that this intergenerational trauma is very different. We have people who were in, in international states in 2009, and then we have witnesses who were there in 2009. So this shared struggle about what did you do in 2009, how did you overcome this pain, is what we find safe in each other. And we know we share that struggle of not being able to go back to our homeland, and we have that urgency of continuing to fight for justice so we can go back and live peacefully. A hundred percent. And, you know, being able to find community with each other and make sure those stories are not lost um, is a really, really important way to keep um, that connection alive. And not that it's, you know, ever going to go away, but uh, I think just, yeah, finding community with each other is something that can't really be forgotten, no matter how many times people want to rewrite history to their own narrative. Um, and also speaking of, you know, lastly, you know, really fighting for justice to commemorate, um, memorializing the day in the truth of the day and finding community with each other. Could you tell us more about what we can expect from the rally this Sunday and how can we show up and support? Yes, yeah, so there are actually two rallies. There's 14th of May, 2 p.m. at Victoria State Library, and at the same time, there's one in Sydney at Town Hall. There will be eyewitnesses speaking. There will be academics speaking. There will be people who were with us during 2009 speaking. We're actually sharing testimonials on the Facebook and Instagram of people supporting the rally. So if people are willing to have a testimonial, please send that through. We actually also released a TikTok yesterday about how we were fighting in 2009 and how we're still fighting now and we're resisting. Um, and we would just love your support by being there and hearing the true pain that we have and we've been carrying on for 14 years. And I will be speaking at um, the Sydney Town Hall one and we have witnesses speaking at also the Victoria State Library. Amazing. Well, I, you know, it sounds like a really... It is a very important event, and uh, we'll post all of the links in our podcast show notes as well. But thank you so much, Renega, for you know sharing insight into you know a lot of these uh, moments and events and genocide that I you know some of our listeners may not have known enough about. But it's so important that we remember it um, for what it was. So you know, thank you for taking the time out as well and sharing that because you know it's you know probably not always easy. Yeah, 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So that was Renega Impakumar, who is a young Ilam Tamil activist and law art student with a long history of organizing to amplify Tamil Ilam issues. She spoke to us about Sunday's rally at the State Library, as well as the one in Town Hall, um, remembering Mulibakal, organized by the Tamil Refugee Council, and why it's so important to commemorate the day in truce with, and you know, remember the genocidal killings and the Tamils all across the world who have had to seek protection because of this. Yeah, and um, for listeners who want to find out more about events that are happening in both Sydney and in Melbourne, you can head to tamilrefugeecouncil.org.au. There are links to socials. There's also more information about the mission of the Tamil Refugee Council and uh, information about how you can support, as well as resources about uh, the Elam Tamil struggle. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Uh, just before we go to the next interview, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, some parts of that interview, a lot of it probably wasn't easy to listen to. There were a lot of mentions um, of, you know, just horrific war crimes that have occurred. And, you know, if something has come up for you and you need additional support, which is 100% totally okay, uh, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That is 131114, uh, and just, yeah, take your time uh, with listening, and, yeah, just, just protect, your, protect your heart and your mind when you can. Yeah, absolutely, and um, as we come into this weekend, of course, uh, there is going to be uh, rallies and events for Nakba Day, as well as commemorating, um, you know, Mulivaikal, and so it's going to be, you know, a very... A very, very emotionally weighty um, weekend, you know, important to commemorate uh, horrific ongoing violence and dispossession um, and, you know, seek comfort in community and in community um, supporting each other to, to get through this and also take this as an impetus to keep organizing for justice. Um, so now we are going to hear a segment of Democracy Now! where Amy Goodman speaks with Matt Mahmoudi, the lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report called Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. And this report documents how the Israeli government is using an experimental facial recognition system to track Palestinians and control their movements. And just a reminder, you can catch Democracy Now! on 3CR on Mondays from 9 to 10 a.m. But let's head to that segment now. 
We begin looking at how the Israeli government is using an experimental facial recognition system to track Palestinians and control their movement. The findings are part of a new report by Amnesty International titled Automated Apartheid that reveals an ever-growing surveillance network of cameras in the occupied West Bank city of Hebron and East Jerusalem, two cities in the occupied territories where Israeli settlements are expanding within Palestinian areas. The high-resolution cameras are pointed at mosques, hospitals, schools, and into people's homes. In Hebron, a program called Red Wolf is used at military checkpoints to scan Palestinians' faces and add them to vast surveillance databases without their consent. This is a clip from a video accompanying the new amnesty report. Imagine you're a Palestinian person from a small village in the occupied territory. You've not registered at a checkpoint or been detained. You've not given your consent to the state. Now, let's say you go visit a sick family member in Hebron, so you pass through a checkpoint. A little yellow light flashes up on the guard screen, but you think nothing of it. But at that moment, that camera has taken a little picture of you and compared it to other images and databases. It hasn't recognized you, so it's taken a picture and fed you into a system without your consent. And this feeds into a giant system so that from now on, any checkpoint in the occupied Palestinian territories or in Israel know who you are. Scans against other biomarkers, other cameras, other databases, all at a massive scale without your consent. Now skip forward to the next time you pass by a checkpoint. You pass through the turnstile and a border guard you've never seen before on the other side says, hey Matt, how are you doing today? And you realize you're now in the system. And you hope to God that that little light behind the screen doesn't for some reason beyond your control turn red. That is Red Wolf. When Palestinians are detained at checkpoints or elsewhere, their so-called biomarkers are added to the surveillance network. This is another clip from Automated Apartheid featuring Ali Amalak, a researcher and advisor on artificial intelligence for Amnesty International. Israeli security forces started having competitions around who could take the most pictures of a Palestinian to run through the database and see if they could find a match. And it's been referred to as Facebook for Palestinians. That's profoundly dehumanizing to be treated as if you're part of a video game. The new automated apartheid report follows Amnesty International's major report last year that laid out how Israel is subjecting Palestinians to the crime of apartheid under international law. This is Cambridge University professor Saul Dubow. There are undoubtedly compelling and very disturbing parallels between the situations under apartheid South Africa and in Israel-Palestine. But I think the differences are also important. The system, oppressive as it was, was never fully operational. And certainly that the sort of high technology claims or hopes of the apartheid government that a centralized bureau of proof could capture all useful information about blacks, that this simply couldn't, uh, that this simply was not sustainable using the technology of the time. However terrifying it would be if you arrested. This was paper copies. It was not Digital by surviving into this period where digital capacity, artificial intelligence is so much more advanced, that gives the Israeli state far more control. 
The Israeli newspaper Haaretz published an editorial Wednesday in response to Amnesty International's report that read in part, quote, there is no other way to describe the system except as biometric apartheid. In the case of Palestinians, not only are they not asked for their consent, the data collection is done without their knowledge, Haaretz said. For more, we go to London. We're joined by Matt Mahmoudi, the lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report called Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. Matt, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you continue to lay out what you found? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. What we found is effectively a system of facial recognition, in particular in Hebron, that follows a slew of experimentation with facial recognition technologies against Palestinians, especially in H2, which is under the, the ruling of the civil administration, which is a, a subunit of, of the COGAT, really under military rule, so to say. And really what we're seeing here is how facial recognition experiments are being used against Palestinians under the auspices of protection protecting the some 850 Israeli settlers that are illegally present in the area, such that Palestinians who previously relied on, for example, knowing a soldier when they're passing by a checkpoint, now have to rely on an algorithm that has collected their biometrics without their knowledge and consent, being able to recognize them. And should it not recognize them, they're suddenly finding themselves in a conundrum in which they might be held back at the checkpoint. Um, a soldier will ask to match their ID to a facial capture that has already been taken such that they can continue to teach the facial recognition algorithm to recognize them in future. In East Jerusalem, we see similar trends in which really surveillance begets illegal settler activity and illegal settler activity begets surveillance. We're seeing how Surveillance has been increasing following the crackdowns on the protests that, that came as a result of the evictions of seven Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah in 2021. Here we've seen in Sheikh Jarrah in particular, as well as by Damascus Gate, as well as in Salwan, areas that are of profound significance to Palestinian communities, that surveillance has been ramping, ramping up as illegal settler activity has also been ramping up. And we're seeing this as a part of a coercive environment that is meant to force Palestinians out of areas of strategic interest to Israeli authorities. And that is why we're saying that effectively facial recognition is augmenting, reinforcing, entrenching aspects of apartheid, such as the aspect that speaks to restrictions on freedom of movement, which is the basic right that Palestinians need to have in order to be able to access things such as, you know, housing, education, work, etc., medical care, as well as the coercive environment component, which, which is instilling a chilling effect on Palestinians and stopping them from being able to, to resist and introducing a further the calculus making it more dangerous to do so. Matt, could you explain uh, when this surveillance technology was put into use in the occupied territories and whether there's any indication that uh, Israel plans to expand the use of this technology? Well, to speak of the two systems in particular that we had under investigations, which is to say the Mabat 2000 system, which is a networked surveillance system that's used in East Jerusalem, and the Red Wolf system, we can speak to, for example, how the Mabat 2000 system was actually put in place at the turn of the millennium. But only in 2017 and 2018, further investment by Israeli police meant that the system was now capable of facial recognition. We initially started with some 400 cameras that were networked, 
to then now thousands of cameras that are able to, to connect with one another and perform facial recognition on Palestinians who at times we've seen are pulled out of crowds and identified simply for participating in protests. We've also seen in, in places like H2 and Hebron um, the rampant use of facial recognition experiments. Of course, surveillance has been, has been part and parcel of the experience in Hebron since the initial division in 19, 1997 uh, between H1 and H2 areas of, of Hebron. But since 2015 in particular, there has been surveillance cameras placed virtually everywhere in streets in H2. In 2021, we started hearing about reports of an app called Blue Wolf being used against Palestinians in Hebron, where effectively soldiers were raiding homes, uh, picking on Palestinians on the streets, and registering their faces into this database that contained further information on Palestinians in an effort to automate the process of being able to identify them in future on the streets. The app, Blue Wolf, incentivizes military units for being able to capture as many faces as possible and makes it nearly inescapable for Palestinians to, to come across surveillance. Now, Red Wolf is just the latest uh, in a slew of these tools that have been used on Palestinians, and we believe there's a high risk of the tool plugging into the database that's already been curated by Blue Wolf, such that information might be presented to a soldier at a checkpoint that really a Palestinian passing through may have no idea exists on them in the first place. And Matt, could you uh, uh, tell us a little about where this technology comes from? Uh, the U.S. is reportedly the second largest exporter of surveillance technology, in particular face recognition technology, and China is the number one exporter. What did you find about the origins of this uh, uh, technology? While we know that the Mabat 2000 system and the Red Wolf system don't have an explicit origin in terms of developer as far as the software is concerned, we know about the, some of the companies that are supplying the cameras, the CCTV cameras, that are plugging into the Mabat 2000 system in, in places like East Jerusalem. So there's been a number of reporting um, done by various partner organizations of ours leading up to this moment, but we found in our report that in particular, Hikvision, the Chinese surveillance manufacturer, as well as TKH Security, which is a Dutch-owned um, surveillance manufacturer, are particularly present in East Jerusalem. Hikvision cameras especially seem to be increasing over the last two years alone in tandem with illegal settler activities in Silwan. And I want to point out here that in Silwan, we are seeing uh, biblical excavation projects in the city of David sites, uh, followed by uh, settler activity, which is taking over demolished Palestinian homes and unhousing them, and then inserting surveillance in the areas to further restrict Palestinians from resisting their illegal activity there. So their TKH security and high vision in particular are at risk of being complicit in international grave crimes unless they make explicit a plan for the removal of their products and make it clear what their human rights due diligence process as well as business relationships have been with Israeli security forces in the area. Matt McMoody, can you talk about the effect this has on the right to freedom of expression, the right of assembly, um, when you have this kind of um, surveillance going on? 
It's important to note that Palestinians, of course, are still resisting the occupation. They're still resisting apartheid. But we've seen in places like Hebron, where Palestinian groups such as the Youth Against Settlements group have been effectively under house arrest with cameras outside turns against their home, making it very difficult for them to engage in their normal activities. In East Jerusalem, we're seeing Palestinians participating in protests, both following the crackdown on the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, as well as following the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle being pulled out of crowds and identified. This disincentivizes people and inserts a sort of environment of fear, which makes it very, very difficult, or at least very costly, for Palestinians to engage in protest and resistance. In Silwan, we had a number of reports from, te- from, from our witnesses and interviewees who spoke to the feeling that every time they had to cross the street, not even to participate in protest, but simply to go and grab coffee with someone, with a neighbor, with a family member, they had to think about where the surveillance camera were. They had to think about what risk they might be uh, incurring in order to participate in just aspects of normal social living. In Hebron, we had testimonies that spoke specifically to how this form of militarization and this form of surveillance has nearly killed all aspects of social life. Matt, could you talk about, you've also documented uh, the widespread use of a network of CCTV cameras. Could you talk about the links between the use of this facial recognition technology, how that works together uh, with this network of CCTV cameras, and also uh, the effect of now the quite quotidian use of facial recognition technology, uh, for example, uh, in smartphones, uh, uh, which, you know, is now uh, quite widespread. Absolutely. First of all, to speak to the network surveillance that we're seeing in East Jerusalem, as I say, that the Mabat 2000 system was put into place in, in 2000 at the turn of the millennium, but it was only equipped with facial recognition technologies in 2017 and 2018. The way that it works is that any camera that is capable of capturing faces, so any high-resolution cameras, which would mean most cameras produced over the last 10 years that are capable of capturing uh, videos, um, would be able to plug into a software software-based system that sits on a computer which can effectively run facial recognition on those CCTV cameras, which is also why in our previous research with Amnesty, we've made it very clear that most cities are just one software upgrade away from being able to have ubiquitous facial recognition capabilities. East Jerusalem is no exception to this, except we're dealing with a context that is internationally recognized as an illegal annexation. And so you're dealing with a double-edged sword of both having the Uh, technology that we see as being fundamentally incompatible with international human rights law, whilst also having it apply in a context that is fundamentally against international law, which is to say the context of apartheid and the context of the illegal annexation. As for the uh, quotidian nature of facial recognition technologies, it's important to note the differences between the systems that we're speaking about here. So, Facial recognition that you might find in your phone is what we call one-to-one facial recognition, which is a match that is made upon you having known and consented towards your face being captured and stored locally on your phone 
for later recognition such that you can log into your system. You might also think of it as, as what some call facial recognition for authorization. It, it, it is sometimes applied to buildings. You will walk into a space. You have already registered just your face to your profile. It will recognize you and allow you entry. For facial recognition for mass surveillance or facial recognition for identification, what we also call one-to-many facial recognition, we're dealing with a system that relies on curating a large-scale database without your knowledge and consent, usually scraping millions of images off of, for example, social media or just in the context of Hebron, for example, through soldiers going around the streets and taking pictures from Palestinians without their knowledge and without their consent. And those then feed into this database that is then being used together with a facial recognition algorithm that determines who the people that are being displayed in particular CCTV footage are. Now, because these systems depend on this large-scale database, we consider them by design to be incompatible with the right to privacy because they are, by design, technologies of mass surveillance. What is the final recommendations of AI for AI? That's Amnesty International on artificial intelligence and what you call automated apartheid. We're calling for the immediate end to facial recognition technologies for a ban on the sales, export, development, deployment of the technologies, and in particular for companies that are providing tools that can be used for facial recognition to immediately seize the sales of those in the context of the Occupy Palestinian territories. We also are calling on the state of Israel to dismantle its system of apartheid against Palestinians, and we believe that by stopping facial recognition, we're taking one step towards weakening apartheid. Matt Mahmoudi, we want to thank you very much for being with us. Lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report, Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. We'll link to the report and the 20-minute video that goes along with it. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You just heard a segment of Democracy Now! where Amy Goodman spoke with Matt Mahmoudi, the lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report called Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. This report documents how the Israeli government is using an experimental facial recognition system to track Palestinians and control their movements. You can catch Democracy Now! on 3CR on Mondays from, from 9 to 10 a.m. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1 p.m. Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1 p.m. Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast, and we're going to go to a track. This one is If uh, by Titara Peak featuring Milan Ring.
CCR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profit. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Now we'll hear from Sione Crawford, who's the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, about Victoria's second medically supervised injecting centre in the city of Melbourne. And this follows the recommendation from the independent review of the medically supervised injecting room in Richmond to establish a second um, medically supervised injecting service trial in the CBD. Thanks so much, Sioni, for coming on the show. Hey there, no problem. Amazing. Well, could we start off with um, what the Victoria's first medically supervised injecting room does at North Richmond Community Health and why it's been so important? Well, the current uh, injecting room in Richmond fundamentally is there to prevent people dying from overdose, uh, particularly overdose from opioids. Um, there's always been a drug market and street sort of using scene in Richmond and the injecting room was put there because that was one of the places in Victoria that had the highest rate of overdoses and so it's done that job really well over the years. So around 6,000 overdoses have been reversed and the estimate from a recent review was that about 63 lives at least have been saved. Um, and not only that, it also does um, sort of things like gateway to other health services, so dental care, uh, pharmacotherapy, which is, you know, um, uh, opioid substitution treatment, and uh, hepatitis C treatment as well. So it does a range of things, but its fundamental role is to stop overdose. Yeah, it sounds like it's, it's been a real success and such an important way for people to have access to other health services. And I know that also on the 5th of June 2020, the Victorian government announced that it had accepted the recommendations of the independent review of the medically supervised injecting room in North Richmond. And one of the key recommendations was to establish a second medically supervised injecting service in the CBD. Could you perhaps explain the recommendation a little bit further and what role harm reduction in Victoria had to play in this? Sure. So harm reduction in Victoria um, is... Uh, an organisation of people with lived and living experience of drug use. So the people that make up our organisation but also our community that we work with are the people who would uh, potentially access these injecting rooms. So we've done uh, consultations with our community around around this and have fed into those reviews and reports over time, including the recent consultation. Um, but the reason why it was recommended to have a second injecting room was primarily because 
the CBD is the other uh, is the other main area for overdoses in uh, Victoria. There's a high population of homeless people, in particular, and marginalised people who um, who typically uh, require think, um, interventions like injecting rooms and benefit the most from them. And the other thing is that it was found that people, when people did travel to Richmond, uh, it was usually to buy drugs and so forth, but um, often people would travel from the CBD to Richmond, and so it's fairly logical to have uh, another service in a place where people are injecting on the streets and um, in sort of uh, vulnerable circumstances. So that's the, the main reason that CBD was recommended, is that um, it's an area where people are currently overdosing and dying, and, and and taxes figures bear that out both before COVID and, and post. Um, and, you know, from our perspective as well, uh, and this is, um, you know, a harm reduction Victoria view, view, it wasn't really put into the review, but from our perspective, it's uh, it would be positive to have multiple injecting rooms around um, the state, especially in places where overdose is, is um, occurring and has occurred for, for many, many years. So we'd like to see them sort of scattered around the city and, and less prominent by the only being one or two, but actually becoming more like an accepted health service. Yeah, absolutely. I think also if, um, you know, the trial is in the city of Melbourne and it moves forward, how do you how do you feel or like Harm Reduction Victoria feels um, it should be different from the North Richmond Medical Supervised Injecting Room? Is it different because it's a different um, different area or so it's a different community? I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's, it's clearly a, like a different space and kind of um, context. So it's going to be potentially in the CBD, which is means there's going to be a lot more sort of shop owners and retailers in the area, potentially tourists and, and that sort of thing. So I think um, the, the, the thinking is that the injecting room will be probably a little bit smaller than the Richmond one. So I think that the idea is that um, we would probably... Support it being just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit smaller, um, partly because the population of people injecting drugs on the street is um, a little bit more scattered and smaller than Richmond. So the need for like a 25-person injecting room maybe isn't as isn't as great. Um, the other things that we um, have consulted with our community about um, include it being safe for diverse communities. So it's not that the current IMSA is not at all safe, but it's that there is really one injecting space. And the feedback that we got really clearly from communities is that, that um, certain um, parts of the population don't feel as safe, you know, going into a shared space like that. So thinking particularly um, women uh, and uh, trans people um, have identified that having a separate entrance or a space that was safe uh, for for them in particular uh, is really important, and I think that's been uh, something that's got that's come through the consultation as well. I think um, I think the other thing that we've learned from uh, the first injecting room is that people who use on the streets and have been um, sort of in that environment and milieu for um, years and years and years, many people have really quite deep seated trauma and. Um, mental health needs and so a service that um, is focused still number one on harm reduction and, and uh, overdose reversal but also has opportunities to refer people through to um, things like trauma counselling but also being a trauma-informed um, model right from the start uh, I think is really important as well. 
Yeah, it sounds like you know there's been really important com- um, like consultation from people who use drugs and advocacy organisations um, and people with lived in living experience um, in all levels. And I think it's really important, you know, what you've mentioned about you know not everybody will feel safe um, in in a shared space like that. I guess I'm curious to know as well, um, and you know, I know that tours are available for the medically supervised injecting room in Richmond. Um, but if somebody wants to use the service, what kind of happens when they like come in through the door, or you know, if they um, do, they get supported by other staff. Could you walk <laughs> us through a bit of the process? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, and one thing I should say about the. Um, just quickly about the second injecting room and something that was identified by people is that, and it relates to this point, is that people want, ideally would like a less public entrance. So one of the things that people find in Richmond at the moment is that because it's been such uh, a media kind of hotspot, um, there are often people taking photos of, of, of users kind of trying, trying to access the injecting room. Um, so that's not not ideal on something that people identified as a major kind of sticking point and sort of conflict uh, com- conflict area. But but as far as like accessing uh, Richmond injecting room, um, so the first way th- the first thing that you do is go through the front door, and there are usually security on the front door, but they're um, generally pretty friendly and are there sort of to safeguard the uh, clients as well as the as well as the service. Um, and then there's like a reception area at the start there where. Um, there are staff behind the counter and you do need to register and go through a process of registration if you aren't already registered. Um, and uh, that's a, it's a fairly um, like a low threshold affair, like um, you just need to provide, you know, a name and some, some details and importantly, um, the drugs that you're um, about to inject. Uh, and then once that's all done or if you're already registered, um, you can go through to the um, injecting area and... Um, you're provided with uh, syringes and disposal equipment and a clean, safe environment to do your business. Um, at the moment, there are restrictions that are um, forced upon the injecting room, so people are not allowed to inject one another. And one of the reasons for that is liability. So if, if someone injects someone and they pass away, there are potential liability problems there. But the issue with that is that it's a really common practice in the community for people to assist one another, especially when they have problematic veins. But generally speaking, you're left to your own devices to um, inject. If you need some assistance with finding a vein or with um, any other harm reduction um, information, there are both nurses and harm reduction practitioners there. And if the worst happens and there's an overdose, uh, generally speaking, um, oxygen will be, you'll be taken to a, to a recovery space and oxygen will be administered and potentially naloxone, which reverses uh, overdoses. So that's where that 6,000 overdose reverse kind of number comes from. Um, but assuming everything's all well, there's also a, um, a, a um, post-injection space where you can be monitored for a little while um, just to make sure that, um, that their effects are not going to get um, much stronger over time because sometimes that might happen, is that overdose is still possible for the technically half an hour, an hour after, after use. So it's not always just an immediate drop situation. So there's, you know, um, other users and staff in that post-injection area for safety reasons and, and really that's where they do things like referrals and talk about other health needs and stuff like that. Amazing, yeah. I feel like I have a really vivid image of, um, like, what happens when you walk through the space and what, yeah, what supports are really available. And it sounds like, a, you know, it is clearly a very important community hub and, you know, having another one is, is so important and hopefully definitely many more. Um, 
But what I, I guess I'm seeing, and you know, also working in the AOD space myself, uh, it's we also know that like stigma and fear and like ongoing discrimination against people who inject drugs has a large role to play in the debate that's surrounding this. Uh, why do you think that you know stigma and discrimination is really intensified for people who inject drugs? You know, considering a lot of us use AOD in one form or another, um, and what can you know we do as uh, people who use drugs or don't use drugs or workers or allies to really help reduce that stigma? Um, that's a great question, and I guess we could probably do the entire interview on that. But um, <laughs> yes, <there> we are... could. <laughs> it is a really uh, knotty one. I suppose the first thing is kind of what you've identified already is that, um, especially I think people listening to this show, I'm sure that like the majority have probably taken an illicit drug in their time and maybe do it regularly. Um, but I think that sometimes we still differentiate ourselves from, oh, well, I don't inject or I don't take heroin, that's the evil drug, or meth, that's the one that's causing all the problems. And I think that the first thing that we can do is actually um, reflect on our own, you know, on our own um, um, sort of cliched beliefs and our own stigma and discrimination. That even if we think that we um, we're not stigmatizing, the question really is: is um, you know, do you actually think that your drug use or, the, or, or that there are different drugs that are better than one one or another? And although it's definite that some drugs um, can form like a physical dependence, for instance opioids, um, it's really important to remember that um, no matter what uh, drug or behaviour that we undertake, it's possible for that to become problematic. So, you know, we see problematic gambling, you know, you see all sorts of um, so-called addictions in the world, and um, substance use is one, but the impact of substance use um, for people who end up dependent because of its illegality becomes so much worse. And so I think that what we need to do is think about, you know, if you were needing to um, yourself obtain sort of $100 or $200 a day uh, for a drug that actually um, through medical um, processes could cost as little as, you know, 5 or $10, um, how that might impact on your day-to-day behaviour if we were in that situation um, and realise that we actually do have choices to make these drugs more available and less in the hands of the black market and therefore incredibly expensive. So I guess what I'm saying is think about how criminalisation and prohibition has actually led us to this place where um, drugs are incredibly expensive and therefore um, becomes really difficult for people to raise the money day to day. When we have you know chronically underfunded AOD services and harm reduction services in, in this state, this country and the world, um, and yet we're like perfectly happy to fund uh, law enforcement, um, you know, to the to the guilds. Um, I think we need to, you know, think clearly about how how we as a population lead, you know, lead politicians to make choices like that, and actually um, stand up and support things like IMSR, um harm reduction and um, sort of decolonisation and de, um, the I guess the de law enforcement uh, of our drug. Um, about drug policy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's so clearly a health issue and that, you know, it it is a compassionate response um, to something that is normal and in the community and it shouldn't be, um, you know, cast aside. And there are so many functions of use of AOD as well. And I guess also, I think on the other end, um, you know, there are lots of people who are very, like, pro the 
second supervised injecting room trial in the CBD. But I also know that people are being sold the idea that the trial is going to be the solution for everything. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to this a little bit more? Yeah, look, I think one of the um, issues with the first injecting room's publicity really was that it came about in a time of political, um, uh, you know, basically it was, there was, there was a political um, ramifications to the, to the, to the, to the first injecting room and it was definitely sold in some degree to the locals as being the solution to the so-called amenity problems, i.e. people injecting on the street and dealing on the streets and all that sort of thing in Richmond. And it's just, you know, no matter how well-funded one service like that is, it's, it, it really can't solve the deep-seated social kind of issues that surround um, a suburb, uh, well, surround an entire kind of um, drug market that's been there for many, many years. And, yeah. you know, we've just talked about how embedded it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I think that what we need to folk remember is these harm reduction approaches are not set up to solve every problem. What they're there to do is is to show people that we care about them and love them and actually ultimately um, want to keep people safe while they're, while they're using. They're not set up to stop people from using drugs usually. They're set up so that people don't die, so that if down the track they end up um, deciding to move on from that drug use, they're still uh, as safe and sound as possible. So I think exactly as you say, um, having... Um, a clear understanding of why we might want a second injection room, and it's not necessarily like quote unquote clean up the CBD, but actually to keep um, some of the most vulnerable people and most marginalised people in our society um, alive for a little bit longer, and also show them some compassion and care, as you say. I think that's what we should, you know, seek out from services like this, and for solving these deep-seated problems. That's um, actually all of our um, that's that's all of our responsibility, in, in particular. Um, you know, our, our elected leaders. No, 100%. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sioni, uh, for coming on the show today. It was a really insightful and important interview, and we'll definitely make sure to like post the links to the survey um, and Harm Reduction Victoria's links to if people want to listen and, uh, yeah, have their say as well. Thank you. It's awesome. Thank have a good you. day. Thank you. You too. Bye. We just heard from Sione Crawford, who is the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, about Victoria's second medically supervised injecting centre in the CBD. And it follows the recommendation after the independent review of the injecting room in Richmond. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR, 855am, digital, 
and 3cr.org.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined in studio by designer, researcher, and delivery uh, writer, Andrew Kopolov, to speak about supporting and organizing gig workers in Melbourne, including through gig worker meetups that are running this work out of testing grounds at Victoria Markets. Let me find which mic you're on. Andrew, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, So I thought that we could start by reviewing some of the challenges that app-based gig workers in Australia face in terms of precarity, income levels, and workplace protections and entitlements. Because I understand that the app-based gig economy does include a whole range of different types of work. Uh, But uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this. And I'm also wondering, in your view, when does uh, the highly promoted flexibility of gig work just mean flexploitation? Yeah, great question. So uh, gig workers, in general, that means people who are classified by their employers as independent contractors and that classification means that uh, these workers don't get the same entitlements as standard employees so things like sick pay super all these uh, kind of things that many employers employees take for granted and not uh, afforded to people doing delivery work rideshare work cleaning uh, or even things like air tasker So, yeah, those are some of the most kind of severe things that they face. But, of course, for many gig workers and especially food delivery riders who I'm focusing on, there's these things of exposure as well. So you're just kind of out in the elements Mm -hmm. and you're exposed to massive risk on the road as well. Uh, Yeah, and in terms of flexibility versus flexploitation, it's... It's interesting looking at the different studies and, you know, who they might be affiliated with. So, for example, uh, if you look at a study that has been conducted by Uber, well, it says, oh, delivery riders love flexibility. But if you look at other studies, you know, more uh, whether that's impartial or perhaps related to the Transport Workers Union, Mm -hmm. then you're looking at the fact that most people would actually prefer to be employees. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you know, this question, obviously, of work security and working conditions are um, acutely felt by yourself because you're both a delivery writer and a researcher investigating these experiences of food delivery workers. So can you tell us a little bit, uh, a little bit about your own journey into the research and what you're looking at and why you are interested in a more systematic analysis of gig worker experiences? Absolutely. So... I think it's important to preface this by saying that, uh, mm, so I've been doing delivery work for about two months now, and um, unlike many people, it's sort of, well, I don't necessarily need to be doing that, so it's not that acute circumstance like it is for many delivery riders. It's more, for me, kind of field work, let's say. Uh, But it's interesting because that type of, employment precarity is something that I, you know, I've also experienced at university. As a university uh, staff member, you're employed for a semester at a time and who knows what happens after that. So I I guess just to say that this type of work sets the scene for casualization in general. Um, And in terms of how I got interested in this stuff, I've just been 
I, I've got a real fascination with kind of supply chains and logistics. So previously I did research on seafarers, uh, which I actually got to go on a container ship for a week, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and then I ran an architecture class on uh, Amazon workers. So this was kind of the next evolution of that, uh, but focused particularly on the city. Mm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in terms of, uh, I guess, like the way that gig workers are moving through the city and especially delivery riders, you've been involved with Melbourne's Gig Workers Meetup, which is, um, I guess, part of the research process, but it's also part of this um, broader kind of organizing, connecting process. And it's running across this week at Testing Grounds as a space for gig workers to rest and recharge and find out more information relevant to their working conditions. So can you tell us a little bit about the key goal of this event and um, the kind of response you're getting from gig workers regarding the importance of that kind of space? Absolutely. So, yes, this event has been a really interesting test. It's the second that we've done uh, in terms of in space. And it's really great to see people from all these different backgrounds with different languages coming together, meeting each other, uh, there's been some interesting instances where, for example, one guy who has been coming back, uh, he had his he he used to do delivery on a scooter. He had his scooter stolen. He was in a really uh, poor state. He'd been sleeping at Melbourne Central, and he came in, and another he's an Indian man, and another Indian man was there, and they were sort of. This second man was really helping him and, you know, suggesting different places he might look for work, things like that. So it's sort of about a space for congregation that can foster that type of solidarity. And, you know, when it, we're talking about sort of particularly at-risk migrant workers, mm -hmm. it's a really essential thing. Uh, so, yeah, it's the purpose of this event is to... Firstly, foster some kind of solidarity, community amongst this group. But more broadly, it's about uh, let's build a permanent space mm -hmm. for gig workers somewhere in the city that people can use. The, you know, it's, it's really basic amenities that these people lack. Like, let's use the toilet, uh, this type yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah, totally. And I mean, like, um, really sort of pushing back against the, the atomization of this labor force because um, with people being treated as independent contractors, it's really like, you know, who do you organize with to change your labor conditions, but also who do you talk to about just navigating the labor conditions of this particular, like, contract status? Mm -hmm. um, now, the Victorian government has established a gig worker support service earlier this year, and this also occurred across the implementation of the Fair Conduct and Accountability Standards, which, um, you know, came out of a review of gig workers' experiences. So can you tell us a bit about these measures and what they offer gig workers in Victoria, as well as where they might fall short? Absolutely. So the one of those that I can speak mostly to is the gig worker support service, uh, and they have been kind enough to join in our hub, in our meetup. So that's been great, having representatives from that group uh, present each day to help inform gig workers about this service. Um, and, yeah, I, I find it quite encouraging because it does suggest that there is a real concern on the part of state government, if not federal government, to kind of address some of these concerns uh, 
Yeah, and so at a state level, there's also been. It's quite interesting the kind of the terminology around this and how that really starts to shape uh, policy, but also opinions that public opinion on mm-hmm. this type of work. So uh, recently, there's been a move to recognise these workers as employee-like workers, which is an interesting uh, classification, and hopefully that translates to. Yeah, better policy and better um, legislation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think like the the, I mean, w- one of the reasons why these companies have been able to sort of coast with horrible labor conditions is because there's a lack of sort of regular like regulatory pressure, mm. um, and that they're they're sort of taking advantage of a lack of regulation to sort of push this idea of a flexible work environment. But then at the end of the day, the people that are most reliant on this work are also people that are extremely marginalized or might not be able to find work in other areas. Um, so this sounds like a really, really important um, project, both mapping these experiences, um, but also providing this service. So I understand that the gig, the gig workers meetup is still going for the rest of the week. And there's also going to be a drop in legal advice clinic for gig workers today. So can you tell people uh, where they can find out more and and um, what today's clinic will involve. Absolutely. So the best place to learn about our initiative is to just visit our website, which is flow-state.one. You could also search Gig Workers Hub. It should come up. So, yes, today we have JobWatch coming in, and that's an employee legal service, Legal Center. So yeah, they'll be offering free legal aid throughout the day to to anyone who has an issue there. And, and gig workers, there's a lot of legal concerns, especially there's also a lot of visa concerns, of course, as well. So there will be uh, lawyers at hand to kind of help deal with any any issues that might arise. I, I would just wanted to add in response to something you were saying before. It's what makes this such a difficult situation is that it's not not as though across the board gig workers w- while many do want to become employers, a lot actually actually do appreciate the flexibility. So it's this it's this difficult circumstance where you don't want to be overly paternalistic about it either. And uh yeah. I, I would also say with kind of added regulation these companies will always find a way to skirt yeah. whatever is added in terms of strictures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a good point about you know the variety of approaches to to gig work. Um, but then you know, I think especially in spaces like the rideshare and delivery driver space is where we can see companies you know potentially find a market, find a lot of um, you know low cost options for employees or you know independent contractors, whatever they are qualified as. But then, as we saw with delivery collapse and then leave so many people in in the lurch. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? I guess I would just add that. Uh you know, presumably your listeners have a good sense of this, but nonetheless, uh, gig workers of all kinds deserve dignity. And uh, hopefully through initiatives like this, there can be a bit more empathy between with gig workers between each other, but also between the general public and the people who deliver us food. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, especially as we've seen uh, the the increase in 
especially uh, delivery services since the pandemic has started. Um, it's just a reminder to, you know, humanize people and, um, you know, they're all workers just like us. So we should all be kind of acting in solidarity to promote the best working conditions for everyone. So thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Um, and that was designer, researcher, and delivery writer Andrew Kopolov, who joined us to speak about supporting and organizing gig workers in Melbourne, including through gig worker meetups that are running this week out of testing grounds at Victoria Market. Andrew's a coordinator at the Melbourne Art Library and a PhD student at Monash University, and you can find out more about the gig worker meetups at flow-state.org. O-N-E. We'll have that information in the show notes and we'll also be linking to the Victorian government's gig workers support service there too. And uh, I believe that's about all we have time for today. Do you want to have a quick whip through what we went? Absolutely. Uh, we so about? first we spoke with Ranaga Impakumar about the Remembering Mulibakal, uh rally at the State Library and Town Hall this Sunday. Yes, that's going to be at 2 p.m. outside the State Library. After that, we heard a segment of Democracy Now! on uh, Amnesty International's new report, Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. And just a reminder about the Nakba Day rally that is happening on Saturday at 1 p.m. outside the State Library. And then we heard from Sione Crawford, who is the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, about the second medically supervised injecting centre in the CBD. And finally, uh, we heard from Andrew Kopolov about supporting and organizing gig workers in Melbourne, including through gig worker meetups that are running this week out of testing grounds at Victoria Market. So, uh, yeah, I believe that is all we have time for today. Um, we'll catch you next week. Uh, oh, one more plug for harm reduction. Victoria's recommendation for people to go and fill out that survey about the medically supervised injecting service trial in CBD. There'll be notes about that in our show notes. Inez, anything else? Have your say. Okay, well, <laughs> go have your say, everyone. Uh, thanks so much, and we'll catch you next week. To ECR Breakfast, we'd like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.